Blood Origins is conveying the truth around hunting. And we convey the truth in various ways. We convey the truth of our heart, and that's what we're known for. We're, we're storytellers that are very non-traditional in terms of what hunting has portrayed itself in the past. We fight using uh, our storytelling ability, essentially, our narrative telling abilities in that we are emotional, we are transparent, we are vulnerable, we are truth tellers, we're fact tellers, um, and we're very even killed. You won't see us ranting, you won't see us raving, you'll see us almost sometimes pointing out the before we point the speck out in somebody else's eye, we're happy to point out the plank that's in our own eye. You know, I'm a very big, and you've seen this on in what I do, actions are louder than words, actions greater than words. to the RNA Outdoors podcast hosted by Lucas Paw. Our purpose is to help educate and inspire within you a renowned passion for the outdoors. So join us as we speak with experts in the industry to share insight and knowledge that helps make hunters and anglers more successful. Welcome, hunters, to the RNA Outdoors podcast. Uh, the headline today is "We Are Under Attack," and uh, if you don't think that's the case, um, you've probably been living under a rock because there are so many things going on out there right now, competing agendas and and Senate bills and other things that are are very concerning for for us in the hunting industry. And I'm very fortunate today uh, to have a special guest uh, on the podcast, uh, someone who, you know, who's really in my my mind as I've as I followed the Blood Origins has been really changing um, our narrative uh, in the hunting industry. Um, has been doing a lot of things, uh, working, collaborating um, with different organizations um, around, you know, really telling their story and, and understanding. Um, you know, our culture and our background and, and why, you know, hunting and being outdoors and doing things that our forefathers did years ago is so important. And in uh, capturing those stories, um, it, it's pretty incredible uh, to see the work um, that my friend Robbie Kroger has been doing with Blood Origins. And uh, with that, and, and no further ado, I'd like to welcome Robbie to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Lucas. Humbled to be here. Uh, humbled by your kind words on our project and, and what we're trying to do. Um, and to echo what you started with, yeah, we're certainly in a fight right now. Um, it just seems like we're getting hit from all angles. Uh, every day I wake up and there's something else or something new that just pops onto our radar. So I appreciate the opportunity. 
Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited to have you. I know you and I have been talking and, and wanting to plan something. And, and again, it, it's so timely right now with, with so many things happening, you know, and, and of course, you know, we won't, we won't, uh, decant too far off our, our topic today, but there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. And, and, you know, politically, there's a lot going on, um, psychologically, you know, where people are at, uh, with, with, with COVID-19 and, and, you know, and then, and then there are us as hunters and people that love to be outdoors that are trying to plan trips and, and do certain things for the fall and, and have so much uncertainty as to, as to what the future is going to be. But, um, and all in all, when I think about it at the end of the day, you know, we have our health, um, hopefully we still have some of our wealth, uh, through all this. And, and at the end of the day, that's really all we can ask for. So that's the, uh, that's the important thing. But, um, before we kind of get down the path of, you know, talking about, um, some of the, I would say more targeted attacks that uh, we want to focus on today, Robbie, I would like you to talk just a little bit about, um, kind of your, um, you know, your vision and mission and, and your purpose with blood origins and, and what you really are trying to do. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, it's it's pretty straightforward what we're trying to do with Blood Origins. And the mission statement is this. Blood Origins is conveying the truth around hunting. And we convey the truth in various ways. We convey the truth of our heart. And that's what we're known for. We're, we're storytellers that are very non-traditional in terms of what hunting has portrayed itself in the past. And so we purposely tell the heart of the who and the heart of the why of our hunting industry. And not just the hunting industry, but non-hunters as well that can see hunting in a different perspective. And that's such an important narrative to be able to see because at the end of the day, conveying the truth about hunting, we're doing it not for hunters. We're doing it for the non-hunting majority that is the voting bloc in this country and pretty mm -hmm. much around the world that keeps our lifestyle alive, essentially. Yeah. Uh, they allow us to do the hunting. And I, and I say allow us very purposely because <laughs> let's not take it as a... Um, a lot of people will say hunting is a right... Hunting is a privilege in my mind. I, come, I came from a country where, South Africa, where I grew up in a, in a town just like Los Angeles that had eight and a half million people. And I never knew what hunting was. Even though my family was steeped in hunting heritage, I never got to hunt. And I didn't have a perspective on hunting. And so I, now being a hunter in America and raising two boys in America, I completely understand that hunting is a privilege. And Blood Origins is, is standing tall and trying to fight for that privilege day in and day out. And we fight in a different way. We fight using uh, our storytelling ability, essentially, our narrative telling abilities in that we are emotional, we are transparent, we are vulnerable, we are truth tellers, we're fact tellers, um, and we're very even killed. You mm -hmm. won't see us ranting. You won't see us raving. You'll see us almost sometimes pointing out the... Before we point the speck out in somebody else's eye, we're happy to point out the plank that's in our own eye. And I think that's refreshing. I think that's what people like you are seeing in us. And indirectly, a lot of hunters are seeing that they may want to have very similar narratives. 
which I believe is a good thing moving forward in mm -hmm. that I think that the hunting industry has painted itself into the corner that we're in over the last couple of decades because we haven't had to worry about it. But now we have to worry about it. We yeah. have to worry about it for our kids and our grandkids one day. One of the things I thought was really interesting, and, and maybe to segue just a little bit, but um, you had put out a post, and, and it was specific to um, some logic that I'm actually very familiar with, and, and, and it is that that iceberg perspective or kind of that, that Heinrich um, you know, system where really there, there's everything that, you know, people see on the surface, right? And, and, and people can gather information from social media, which can be good and bad. They can gather information, um, you know, from watching TV, they can gather information from the news, they can gather information from their friends and their neighbors, right? And, and it's all a matter of who they talk to. But there's another part of this where, you know, there's a lot of stuff that they don't see and they don't understand, um, specifically the values around hunters and really specifically conservation. And, and that's what it's really about when you think about it. Um, you know, hunters are conservationists and, uh, and, and some of the best in the world, right? And, and that's been proven. That, that science is proven. Um, you know, the logic behind it uh, has been proven for years. Teddy Roosevelt, you know, talked about that years ago. And, and uh, so it's those things to me that, that we hold sacred um, that every day when we turn around, you know, it's like something's getting taken away from us or, or they're coming at us from this angle. But to get back to your iceberg perspective, um, you know, I really appreciated seeing how you connected that iceberg um, really to the perspective around conservation and, and, again, what people see on the surface versus what people don't see underneath the water. Lucas, why do you think that is the case? You know, when you talked about with kind of the purpose of blood origins, right? It's, it's telling the stories. And, uh, and when I think about telling the stories, I always think about, okay, who's your targeted audience? Are you trying to tar target people that are on our side? Well, people that are on our side support it, right? Then you have people that are on the fence. People are on the fence. You could persuade them one way to the left, which means they don't believe any of it and they think it's wrong. Or you could persuade them onto our side, which I say our side, which is, you know, the side that we think um, hunting and conservation and being outdoors is, you know, is viable, uh, is a viable system. But then you've got that group of folks that, you know, you'll probably never convey. And, and I always wonder with that group, do you try to target that group or do you say, you know what, I'm never going to change your, you know, your thoughts, your views on the way we see, um, you know, the hunting and the fishing and, and, and the outdoor industry. And you focus on the people on the fence and try to convey the 50% that are on the fence, maybe potentially that, that you can string your way. And I don't know, it, it, it's, it's a way that I viewed it and I've looked at it because, um, and, and it goes for a lot of things, I think, in the world. If, if you want to talk about politics, right? If someone's on the fence, you might be able to persuade them. If they're far left or far right, it's going to be hard to get them neutral one way or the other. But, um, you know, for me, it, it's when I find someone who says, you know, I'm interested in that, but I don't know a lot about it you know, but I'm an animal lover and blah, 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 but I'm really interested in, you know, the animal and how do you, what do you do with the animal? And so those are the conversations I feel like, wow, here's a light bulb I can engage in, right? 
when I meet someone who says, you know, I can't believe you would, you know, do that to an animal and, 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 uh, you know, traveling all over the world and Hank putting them on your, on your wall is that's just a disgrace. You know, there's not a lot in common. Me and this individual are not going to have, and I'm probably not going to engage in that conversation. Right. So, um, so I, you know, I'm not sure I fully answered no, your question, well, I, but I will say this. I think that you, you just, you skirted the, the you skirted the question because again, the question is, why, Lucas? Why have they not seen what's under the iceberg? They've never been educated, probably. No. You know, they've, they, okay, let's just say that. Let's just say that. They haven't been educated. Well, why haven't they been educated? Well, they've never, they've never heard that narrative. They don't know the okay. narrative, right? They don't know the narrative. Why, have, why has the narrative never been? Why have they never heard the narrative? Because it's been suppressed. They don't want people to know that narrative. They don't. They wouldn't want to know that I came from a family that was poverty stricken. That we grew up on a farm and a ranch. And if we didn't have venison, we didn't eat. Right. That's how I grew up, and that's what Look, I know. I will, I will say this. I will say that that narrative that you just described is transparent, is vulnerable but is not very sexy in the hunting industry. Sure. And that's why the bottom of the iceberg has never been shown. I'll give you another example. One of the things in the bottom of the iceberg is how we use the phrase, and, and hunting is conservation. Well, what does that mean? Okay, well, hunters provide protein and meat to communities all throughout Africa. And you're correct. There is science that backs it up. But nobody's going to read a science article, let's be honest. No, it's driven so by when, emotion. It's not driven by science. Correct. So when somebody sees 95% of the films out there that show a hunter in Africa hunting something over his right shoulder or her left shoulder, and for a 10-minute film, 9 minutes and 45 seconds is the person hunting the animal. And 15 seconds of that film is then distributing the meat at the village. Can you understand now why they're not seeing the bottom of the iceberg? Yeah, absolutely. Why not have 95, why not have 9 minutes and 30 seconds focused on the village and the meat that they are getting and what it's doing and... 15 seconds of the hunter coming to the village and dropping off the meat. Yeah. It's switching that ideal, right? That idea of this narrative of how do we portray who we are as hunters? How do we take on the mission of showcasing the benefits of hunting? Unfortunately, here's the, where the rubber meets the road and why it hasn't been told yet. Is that showcasing the benefits of hunting doesn't sell a gun, doesn't sell a bullet, doesn't sell camera. Yeah, it's not sexy, right? It's not sexy, so nobody's going to put money behind it. Well, it, it, it totally makes sense. And, and when you think about it from that perspective, you know, that's in a, in a true, you know, hunter's, you know, culture and, and what they do, they're providers, right? And, and our forefathers, you know, the natives before us, they were hunters and gatherers, and they didn't survive unless they had meat, and that's how they survived, right? And, and, and to an extent, you know, it's, it's that way to an extent for us, but it is different now because, you know, you can go to a store and you can buy meat, but 
in a time right now, it's interesting because, you know, when a meat plant gets shut down because of a virus, you know, what does that do to the price of meat? It's, it's simple economics. It's supply and demand, right? And I've had so many people recently come up to me, and, and this, is, this is kind of an interesting spin. Um, you know, they say, man, I'm, I'm so glad, you know, I know you, you know, we've been, you know, it's so cool that you're a hunter and you can provide and all this. And, and in the back of my mind, I'm saying, you know, we've been friends for 20 years and I've hunted my whole life. You know that I've done this, but it's very, it's very, um, I would say transparent to them now when they go to the store to buy a tri-tip, if they can even find one, you know, when I can just go and pull an elk tri-tip, you know, out of my freezer and, and cook it because I know where I procured it. I know how I took it off the mountain. I know that it was probably grass fed for the five, six years of its life. You know, it's probably some of the best natural protein you can have, but it's just funny how people are so aware now, whereas before, you know, they didn't, they didn't care. They didn't know. I mean, I would prepare the meat for them. They would, you know, absolutely love it and say, man, this is so good. I mean, you know, like absolutely it's so good, right? I mean, this is about the, the best, the, the best that you can put in your body, but it's just interesting in times now where, you know, you can't go to the store and, and buy what you want. And then, you know, you find out who your friends are when they say, man, it's just so cool that you can do that. And oh, by the way, do you have any elk burger you can spare or anything? It's just, it's interesting. It, it the dynamic is, is, has changed and people's perspectives have changed and, and maybe some of that will, will open up some people's eyes, you know, in, in a way well, that, COVID, uh, well, COVID's definitely been a double-edged sword, right? So COVID obviously has smacked outfitters all over the world yeah. and placed them into a hunting ban. But COVID in the United States has shown that people are willing to go back to their hunter-gatherer roots. You know, freaking turkey licenses were up 39% in Michigan. Um, I think the same thing in Rhode Island or New Jersey. Turkey hunting licenses and fishing licenses are way up in 2020. And so, you know, that's the double-edged sword. Like people are realizing, oh, we can go and procure our own meat if we need to. And uh, it's a good rational. It's a good narrative that, you know, those types of people are coming to hunting and realizing what hunting is, right? Mm -hmm. And they're doing it specifically for the food. Uh, the food security aspect of it. Um, and just, you know, getting back to your, your original question, that's exactly what Blood Origins is all about. We're now a 501c3 that now can solicit private donations and we can do, we can do the narrative work that we know needs to happen and find the individuals that can see the see what we're doing and the reason we're doing it and the purpose of why we do it. And they can get behind us and say, yeah, we, we want to be a part of that, that mission. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. It's, it's exciting to, to have, you know, something like this that is telling and pushing, you know, this narrative in a way that hasn't really been told before. And, uh, again, to my point, I think people, People that are in it understand it a little bit and get it, but it doesn't show that way. And, you know, and, and to your point around, you know, a lot of these videos now, it's it's not about, you know, you might get the 30-second clip of them cooking part of the backstrap on a rock on the mountain right after the animal's been harvested. But the whole video, you know, what gets, you know, three, three million views is, you know, the stock and finding the animal and then the take of the animal, right? And then there's the celebration at the end. But, um, 
It's not always about what happens with that animal, how it's used. And in Africa specifically, which, you know, I've, I've been to Africa multiple times, um, you know, nothing goes to waste there. And it, it, it was it was education for me when I went um, because I watched as, you know, the, the, the first animal that I, that I took was a kudu. It was a beautiful kudu. And uh, when we got it back, you know, they're, they're cutting the stomach out and they're cutting the, the undigested, you know, um, you know, feed in the animal, they're taking that. And then they use that, you know, um, to, to fertilize with, and they just start, they, they just start cutting these animals to where nothing goes to waste. And it, it's, it's, it's remarkable and incredible because I'd like to pride myself on, you know, you know, taking, especially like if you're on in Alaska, you got to take all, you know, all usable meat. So I pride myself on that, but I mean, here they are using everything in that animal and, uh, and, and, and it's, it's a way of life. It's what they know and, and they find a use for it. And, uh, but you never hear about that, right? You never hear those stories. You never see any of that. And, and, uh, and that could persuade and change people's perception about what we do. No doubt. No doubt. It's just, it's, it's just being cognizant of what you're putting out there, what, how you're speaking to people. You know, we live in a day and age where people rant and rave on both sides. You've, you've mentioned it already politically, you know, the diverse, the, the distance between the left and the right is so great right now. Mm-hmm. And what we've found on Facebook, for instance, right? Facebook, <laughs> the greatest platform for the anti-hunters to just sit behind a keyboard and just pound you. Yeah. It's that we have some very, we don't, we don't yell back at a comment that's absolutely ludicrous. We just respond with a very logical question. And they're forced to think through their next answer. And it's funny how somebody who comes at you, you know, trying to knock your, knock your block off after three or four exchanges almost says to you, I understand where you're coming from, but I'm never going to change my stance. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's a victory, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I get it, but I'm not going to change. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, you know, not to rant on social media, but it gives everybody a platform, you know, and, and, uh, I, you know, I'll be honest, I, I, I've posted, you know, stuff before that, that was probably borderline controversial. And, you know, I got a lot of blowback and feedback. I posted a picture of a baboon I harvested, you know, in, in Africa, and you can only imagine how much feedback I got on that. Right. So he makes everyone go crazy. Oh, exactly. And, you know, and you've got, you've got people on our side that say, you know, shooting a baboon with a bow, how cool is that? And then you've got just a line of people and, and, you know, and and I, I don't, my, my reply to those typically Robbie is not to reply because that's my answer. And a lot of times what I do is, is I delete a lot of those comments or, or even I get a lot of the DMS and I'll read them and, and part of me says, you know, left, you know, kind of, you know, left-hand column, you know, if we're talking about the ladder of inference here, says, I want to reply and I want to tell them how I feel, but all I'm going to do is feed that fire. And, you know, from being vulnerable, you talked about that being authentic, that that's, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to go on a, on a rant and, and, uh, you know, go down a squirrel hole with someone who I'm never going to be able to change their view or perception on, on, uh, on this. So, so again, that's kind of my reply is typically no reply. That's my answer. And, and, uh, whether it's right or wrong, it's, it's for me, it's proven to be, you know, I, I, I don't get into those, um, those discussions with folks like that. Cause it, 
typically doesn't get anywhere. So, okay, well, that was a good, I would say, introduction. I, I, I'm really glad to to really understand a little bit about blood origins, and and I want to share. I'm glad you shared a little piece to to the, really the why in in what you guys are doing. I think that's important. I think it's important that. Um, the listeners of this podcast understand that, right? Um, and we'll talk more about how they can connect with you um, towards the end. But I think that part was very important that we talked about. But really what, what you and I have, um, you know, kind of been scheming and discussing um, it is, you know, some of these, um, you know, potential bans and threats and, you know, re- re- reality, realistic things that are hitting us uh, in our industry that, can have both significant fiscal impact, um, but also have impact to our livelihood. And and you talked about, you know, what this, this, you know, situation right now is doing with outfitters and, you know, prime example, I got an email from an outfitter today that said, uh, you know, a, a hunt that I had planned in British Columbia was off and, and he had to, he had to cancel all of his August and September hunts. I mean, these are, these are hunts that take two years to plan, right? Um, you know, it's, it's hard to just be able to, to, to do a, you know, a sheep hunt like that off the cuff. So, you know, things like this put these outfitters out of business and, and, and that, that is concerning. And, and it's also, you know, understanding of them that this is their livelihood. This is what they do. This is what they know. This is what they've done their whole lives. And, uh, and, and now they're at a point where, you know, the government really is telling them what they can and can't do. But, um, you know, specifically one that is near and dear to me and, and kind of hits home um, is the Senate Bill 1175. And uh, and for those that don't understand or know exactly what that is, basically in a nutshell, um, it would ban the possession um, and also the importation of what they've identified as 13 iconic African species. Uh, and, and some of those, which would be um, African elephant, lions, leopards, uh, rhino, giraffe, zebra, hippo, hyena. There's a few others in that uh, iconic species, mountain zebra, you know, baboon, things that a lot of people go to Africa to shoot, which are some things that I have currently sitting in South Africa um, with pretty steep um, civil penalties that could potentially violate this could be, they're talking at upwards to $40,000 for each violation. Uh, I mean, it's just astronomical. But when you think about it, you know, when you think about the premise of Senate Bill 1175, right, this isn't about, um, you know, to me, um, they're looking at, they want to ban these African species um, and allowing you to be able to go. You can hunt them all you want over there. You just cannot bring them back into California. Uh, but what that does is, again, that that's a hit to the outfitters in Africa, right? And, and significant fiscal impact already to a state that has such a deficit um, and a fish and wildlife division, um, you know, again, that's roughly, you know, has a $34 million deficit coming into the 2021 fiscal year. And uh, so, you know, thinking about it, and, and I guess a question um, for you, Robbie, as I kind of teed up what Senate Bill 1175 is, you know, specifically, you know, this is going to have an impact in California. But what I see typically with these is, is that once it gets approved in California, like a lot of gun laws, those things start to permeate throughout the U.S., right? And it, and it sets a premise. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's very concerning that things like this even come up. But from the standpoint of, you know, 
you being, uh, you know, obviously born and raised in, in Africa and, and having roots there, what does something like this trigger for you or mean to you when you see something like this? Now, you don't even live in California. It wouldn't even affect you. But how does this affect someone like you? Well, it doesn't affect me because uh, I live in Mississippi now. Exactly. But, uh, the you know, it, it's funny in, in today's day and age of our modern society, you have a individual and it's, it's Senator Harry Stern who is acting like an eco-colonialist. And what that means, it's a very fancy term, but if you think back in the days in the 1700s and 1800s, the dominant uh, world powers of England, of Germany, of Portugal, they conquered the world. And when they conquered the world, they colonized areas and they colonized people. And in that colonization, they essentially determined the economic future of those people in those places. Well, eco-colonialism is essentially the same thing that's happening in the 21st century but it's enforcing uh, through environmental regulations a economic burden on a place, a country, and a people from afar, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so that's what SB 1175 is. And actually, it's actually not called the Iconic African Protected Species Act any longer. It's supposedly some sort of live COVID wet market act now. Mm. And so... Even if you, if you go online and you Google SB 1175, you'll see the red lines to the amendment. And it's, it's so blatant that the red lines crosses out iconic African Protected Species Act and calls it now this live COVID wet market act. They added a bit of language around uh, the sale of live animals in wet markets. Oh. Yet they kept all the riders associated with the iconic African Protected Species Act. And so it's just a... What what's tr- the most as a the most troubling thing about SB one one seven five is that no matter the science, no matter the narrative of the people on the front lines explaining what hunting means to the people of Botswana, what hunting means to the people of Namibia, how the revenues are. Uh, supporting schools and medical and uh, a betterment of, of, of community livelihoods in Tanzania, the senators, and I can't remember them all now, Stern obviously one of them, decided yeah. that they knew better. And that's what, it, that's what it boils down to. They feel like they know better of how to manage these resources than the people that live with them day in and day out. Yeah. And to, to, to kind of follow that up to, you know, <laughs> there, there is, there is, when you think about science behind this, you talked about the endangered species act, right? And the funny thing is about this is that 1175 actually directly conflicts with the Endangered Species Act and actually also conflicts with, you know, the CITES Act, which was put in place years ago, um, really, which was, you know, that international, you know, agreement 
between governments uh, to ensure that international trade, you know, could occur, but would also not threaten the survival of the animal. But what's funny is when you look at survivability and viability of a lot of these species, I mean, they're doing great. I mean, I mean, I think because of hunting and because of, of the, of the, probably the last 15 to 20 years of efforts that have gone into conservation and, and conserving things like rhinos and, 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 and other species, African elephants, the story of Botswana, right. Opening back up. Um, you know, <laughs> this is, this is, this is an exact, um, you know, contrast to those, you know, basically federal, these are federal programs, international and federal programs that have been put in place where this completely conflicts with. And so well, that's going to be the saving grace. That's going to be the saving grace of 1175 is that it's already been through the federal court system. SCI fought it and SCI won for, mm-hmm. for hunters. And so the, you know, if it does move through, I think I saw something on the email uh, either yesterday or the day before about a countersuit or something like that against the state of California um, because it would not be in line with um, what was just essentially federally approved. Now, I'm, de- I'm look, I'm swimming in really deep waters because I'm not a lawyer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but I know that that is a, we have that chip, we have that chip in our corner yeah. for sure. Yeah. Uh, and you, you talk about Safari Club International, and uh, I tell you, um, they've, they've reached out to me. I've, I've been in working with Chip and a few others um, there and, and some of their marketing group specifically around this because they've taken some of the folks that they're affiliated with, and I work with SCI, and they've asked us on the front lines here in California. I live in the central coast of California. I love to go to Africa. I have, I have a handful of friends that live in our community that I know go every year, right? They love Africa. We all love Africa. There's something about Africa when you go, it captures your heart. And, uh, and, and it, you can't explain it. I, I tell people that like, you know, why would you go to Africa and just go to hunt there? I said, you have to go there. I, I, I can show you the photos. I can show you the sunsets. I can show you the landscape, but until you go there and experience that experience and see the diversity of animals. And again, I say it, it it's the story of conservation is, is Africa and, and what they've done there. Um, it's an incredible place. And, uh, and for them to, you know, really SCI to step up like they have and, you know, really one actively oppose um, the legislation, um, but also really be, I would say, you know, the front runners um, in in really trying to, I would say, put a narrative out there that you know really disproves this from a lot of different angles. And uh, I, I've, I, my hats off um, to SCI uh, because I think they also know when they read through. And you talked about the red lining, and they're changing the names. And as it goes through multiple iterations um, and reviews, it's probably going to happen. But um, you know, SCI, this is not their first battle in this, and, and this is not their first rodeo. And, uh, they are, you know, they are one of the right, um, you know, really consensus groups, in my opinion, that has a very strong backing to get at, you know, a Senate bill like this and, uh, really try to, you know, work it and flush it out of the system. But, um, in addition to that, Robbie, I know you've done some work with SCI and trying to tell the story as well. Is that correct? Yeah, well, we did, a. Not with SCI, they just they got on board with us and just shared it. Okay. Um, I just heard about SB one one seven five and 
got my blood boiling, so I decided to uh, yeah. <laughs> do a talking head. Yeah. And uh, I did two talking heads, one and then the one when it passed the Senate bill. Um, and we've got a third one waiting in the wings. So we'll wait for it to come out of the house, which it probably will do. And I know that SEI has some big guns uh, waiting to talk to the governor if that happens. But we've got one waiting in the wings that's going to be very science-heavy. And it's going to be pretty much to all those senators and House representatives that passed the bill to say, okay, I assume you saw all the science that I'm about to lay on you and you just chose to ignore it. Mm -hmm. And that's our narrative. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Wait, when you think about Senate Bill 1175, right? You can read, you can read the the manuscript. I mean, it, you know, it's it's you know how many? It's hundred page. I mean, it's it's very long. I I have not begun to read all of it, but I have I have extracted some information out of there that, in my opinion, I thought was you know was important. But um, thinking about if something like this was to pass, okay, and 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 I. I honestly think I think I think we do have a strong fighting chance to 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 overthrow 1175 but if this was to pass right what what do you think about in terms of you know and again having roots in Africa having spent time in Africa knowing a lot of guides and outfitters working with a lot of guides and outfitters what does this really do beyond the fiscal impact what does this do um, to Africa, not only from a fiscal standpoint, but also culturally and really how they've been raised? Um, it's definitely precedent setting. It's going to ramp up the anti-hunting base to push this through elsewhere. You know, we've got a couple of bills in Washington, D.C., one specifically the Cecil Act, that essentially is doing this at the federal level. Uh, that'll come up in the next six months. It'll certainly have an impact on outfitters, you know, people that are worried now about going to Africa mm -hmm. and how do they get their trophies back is going to be something that somebody's going to have to consider. Um, but I'll say this, and I've, I've done a lot of thinking about this because obviously we get asked the question, and, and you know this better than anyone, it's all about the trophy, right, for hunters. And our answer is no, it's not. Well, then, if it's not, and this is me being devil's advocate here, mm -hmm. if it's not, then we should be okay with SB 1175. Yeah, because is it about the experience hunt. or is it about the trophy, yeah. right? So you can still go hunt. And so in my, in my brain, as I, as I think through this, as I brain farted out to you the first time I'm hearing it myself, is there an opportunity and maybe somebody who's really smart in the business sense will probably capitalize on this. If this becomes more of the norm, you know, in today's day and age in terms of technology, like I've seen those, uh, and I'll use the example, the only example I know of, is that people have taxidermied American bald eagles, right? You've seen them. Sure. But they're not bald eagles. They're replicas. They look exactly like it, but they're not it. And so is that where we need is that where we're gonna go? For instance, Lucas, your impala, maybe the and, and this is where I think things would get tricky, right? Like what is to considered taxidermy? Is the skull considered taxidermy or just the horns? Mm -hmm. And so if it's just the horns and the skull's fine, well then 
all somebody needs to do is figure out how to replicate what those horns look like. Sure. And if you just get us, you just, you know, the measurements and everything, you, everyone, people do it for fish, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So why don't we do it for hunting? I'm just thinking outside the box. No, here I, I'm with you. Where we're going. This is, you know, let's be honest. It's in 10 years time. That may be the newest business opportunity. And if I was a businessman, I'd, I'd, I'd jump on it but i'm not so. yeah yeah <laughs> i'll just be a silent partner with somebody sure. like you you got the idea right we just <laughs> that's all that matters but you know i want i want to i want to go back to one of your comments and 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 you you bring up a very valid point right when people go to africa a lot of times it's about you know the trophy it's the picture shot the animal the trophy you don't see the experience behind it you rarely ever see any of the meat. Now, sometimes you do see the fellowships in the evenings, right? Everything that you harvest there, you get an opportunity to eat there. And again, you talk about narrative, that narrative isn't always shared, but you know, but that that's a great point. When you talk about, is it all about the trophy? Well, for some it is, right? I'll be the first to tell you, for me, everything for me is about experience. Now, the meat to me has always been secondary. And, and not that I don't enjoy the meat. I do. I love the meat. I keep the meat and, and I donate a lot of the meat. But for me, it's about the experience and to go to Africa and, and, you know, I'm not a blind hunter. I don't like to sit blinds. I'm not a patient person, but I realize that is their culture and how they do a lot of their hunting there. And I'm okay with that. Right. I want to experience what they do in Africa. Right. I want to, I want to experience a hundred percent of how they do hunting in Africa, because it's not a lot of times like how we, you know, would do Western hunting, let's say, you know, in, in Montana or Utah. Right. But that, that to me is the essence of why for me, I want to go back to Africa and, and I want to go do Buffalo hunt. And I had, I had one planned for this year and it didn't happen. And, and so hopefully next year I'm going to get that opportunity, but I want to go to Africa because I love going to Africa and I love that experience right now. If, if all of the animals that I had taken were ended up being on this Senate bill and they ended up getting landlocked over there, you know what? It would suck, but you know what? Life would go on. And I got some great memories. I have some incredible photos of what happened and, and I could live with that. Right. But I will tell you some people go over there because it is about bringing back that trophy, putting it on the wall and, and that's okay. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if the new norm is, is we in California can't do that anymore. And this was to hopefully, you know, not if it was to pass, hopefully it doesn't. Um, but if we could not possess and import them, um, then so be it. And, and, and another narrative I'll share is mountain lions. California banned the, 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 the um, ability to hunt mountain lions about 15 years ago. And when they did that, of course, it, it started an uproar because hunters said, well, if we can't manage and conserve mountain lions, what's going to happen? Well, our deer populations are going to struggle, right? Um, and, and, and it's survival of the fittest. They, they, are, they are the apex predator. Well, here it's 15 years removed, and we still have mountain lions. And guess what? We still have deer. But the interesting thing is they also banned if you hunted one out of state. So I'll use me an example. I went and hunted mountain lion in Montana earlier this year at I cannot legally bring any part of that animal back into California, right? So part of you says is, why'd you go do it? Well, you know, 
I've always wanted to hunt a mountain lion and I've been on mountain lion hunts. I've never got to do it for myself. And if I can't bring the skull or the rug back, that's fine. Because you know what? I have all my family lives in Montana because that's where I'm originally born and raised and it can stay there. I'm okay with that. Right. But I can't bring it here. So part of me already feels this, um, you know, if you will, you know, I, I would say, you know, ban, um, whatever you want to call it, you know, ability to not, you know, take the trophy back to, you know, to your dwelling or whatever. But, um, you know, that's just another example where, you know, they successfully got that through. And then one last thing, California banned bobcat hunting this year. Literally, they put a bill in place that Governor Newsom signed in with a tax bill that went through late last year that banned bobcat hunting. And no one even knew about it. SCI found out about it late. They tried to do a kind of a um, 11th hour, um, you know, kind of petition type thing. It was too late. It went through. It got passed. Well, now we've got bobcats and mountain lions that we can't hunt. And, and so it, it's concerning for populations of animals. Um, at the same time, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're still chasing good deer. We're still seeing good deer. And although the mountain lions do do some, you know, um, wreak some havoc on those animals. Um, you know, it, you know, we're, we're, we're not at a point where deer are extinct. So, uh, anyway, I kind of, I kind of got off on a tangent there, but, um, it does impact me directly and, and I feel that, but I think at the end of the day, you know, life would go on and, and it would suck if you would go to Africa and couldn't bring those things back. But, um, you know, to your point, Americans, that's what makes Americans great. We're innovative, we're creative, we think of ways and ideas to do things, and there would be a workaround or a way to do that. Yep. So, 100%. Okay. So, that's one of the problems we have on our plate today. Yeah. One of how many, right? Well, yeah. And given the fact that it was Cecil's five-year anniversary on july the second of course they're just coming freaking out of the woodwork every yeah. day well and anything That's why like we that had to go after ricky gervais this past sunday yeah because he came out with a ludicrous statement in his on his own and uh i'll tell you what lucas everyone was like hey did ricky did he reach back out to you did he reach back out to you if you look at ricky gervais's ig page mm-hmm. his instagram page he hasn't posted anything around trophy hunting in weeks. Well, and but... first thing Monday morning, not 12 hours after our video posted, he posted a picture of an elephant. Really? And said, yep. And he said, and he spelled tusk wrong. He said, elephants are the only ones that should have a tusk or tuck or something like that. Banned trophy hunting. And just that post alone, tells me he saw it yeah for sure well it triggered him right hell yeah it did and that's okay and there's nothing wrong with that right i mean in a world of freedom of speech now i don't want to go down that squirrel hole but people have the ability to tell their story and but they do it in a peaceful way that's right you know uh respectful way and look, I like the guy, right? I like. I think he's funny as all get out. I think his comedy in England is freaking funny. I think the way that he called out all the celebrities at, at the Emmys was amazing. Mm-hmm. But and and I thought and everything I said in that video was truthful. I was like, but you know, you you haven't done your research here, my friend. Yeah. Now, granted, what we don't see is what's behind the scenes, and I would I would almost put money on the fact that he's getting money from these organizations as a spokesperson. So 
Sure. Yeah, there's 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 funding behind that. I mean, there's there's more behind that than we know. To your point, and and um, yeah, wow, a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff going on. And and to maybe I would say caveat a little bit um, something that's I wouldn't say so near and dear to our heart that's really impacting us, you know, here in the United States, but something else um, that's been thrown on the plate um, is. Um, what the DOC came out with, um, which is Department of Conservation uh, in New Zealand and our Kiwi friends down there. And, and I've been to New Zealand and I've hunted tar. I've hunted red stag. I've hunted chamois. I, I love New Zealand. I, I feel like a part of me when I've been there is, is still there because there's something magical about New Zealand. But here is, again, I would say maybe somewhat more of an isolated event, but at the same time, Right, they're trying to at a, at a second attempt, um, trying to start um, back up what they tried originally in 2018 is to cull roughly 10,000 Himalayan tar off the mountain in New Zealand, and and I know you have spent a little bit more time in this space um, I know than I have, but uh, some some of your titles I I, I kind of laughed a little bit, but Tarmageddon <laughs> and and, yeah. and and Tarminate, I mean. Terminator. Terminator, right? And and uh, yeah, it, it's 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 another example of where we in our industry and and what we're trying to do are under attack. Yeah. So in New Zealand, just for the audience, is if if you've been, as I said in one of my videos, if you've been living under the rock and you haven't seen what's happening. This is what's happening. The Department of Conservation has decided to implement a cull in 2020 and 2021, and that is not unique. And I think if you spoke to 100 out of 100 New Zealand hunters, the right ones, they would say that culling is an important management tool in the population control of tar. Hunters cannot control the population, and they do need managing. And so there is an even middle ground that needs to be found between culling and hunting. That's what hunters want. Mm -hmm. The 2020-2021 plan is not that even middle ground. What it is is a tripling of aerial shooting time uh, for tar and a elimination. And I like to use the word elimination, not culling. A friend of mine, Peter Ryan in New Zealand, said that elimination is a better term because culling suggests something that's not useful. Sure. Elimination is something that is of something that is useful. And tar is certainly useful for protein, for recreational mental well-being, for the recreational hunters of New Zealand, but obviously very much important to the economic GDP of New Zealand to the tune of about $100 million on an annual basis. And not all 100 are going to tar naturally, but a lot of people like yourself go to New Zealand specifically to hunt that iconic species, which is the tar. Um, and so DOC has decided that they're going to triple the amount of aerial shooting, and then on national parks, they're going to eliminate tar, i.e. they're going to take tar down to a density of zero, which means they're targeting billies. And so when this came up in 2018, they had another massive fight. The hunting community around the world stood up, stood up firm, DOC backed down, they said we'd only take out 10,000 because the, uh, the original population estimate was about 34,000. They said they'll only take out 10,000 and they'll leave the Belize. 
Well, they took out 10,000. The recreational hunters took out another 5,000. The commercial guys took out another 2,000. So best estimates were that there's probably about 18,000 tar running around the mountains today. And so the controversy is the, the fact that there is no science, the science, well, sorry, let me back up, that there is, the science is not good enough to understand the population. The plan that everyone is working off of is a 1993 tar management plan that was put in place in an experimental fashion. DOC hasn't done the monitoring, the vegetation monitoring, the animal monitoring. And so there's a middle ground to be had for, for both DOC, which is, and let's, you know, let's play devil's advocate here. DOC's role here is to protect the New Zealand native flora and fauna. Himalayan tar are non-native. I would mm -hmm. call them a game species. I wouldn't call them feral or non-invasive or an invasive because to me they're a resource. A invasive species is something that has no value. Um, so there is an opportunity here for that the that hunters want to see a middle ground formed in which there's collaboration, coordination between doc and hunting, and also this idea of potentially updating the tar management plan of 1993 with a more robust, rigorous scientific methodology that has some sort of adaptive management strategies built into it so that you could adaptively manage population through catchments, i.e. through space, and then obviously through time. Mm -hmm. um, so just fast forward in terms of an update, the Tar Foundation filed an injunction on the cull. The forest and what started this all was forest and bird actually uh, who's a big anti-hunting organization, filed suit against the Department of Conservation, saying, you are not doing what you're legally bound to do, which is eliminate tar. Well, the hunting side of the thing placed an injunction on DOC to say, we ca you cannot move forward with the cull because you haven't consulted us correctly and we think it's uh, not appropriate. The judge heard the hearing for the injunction, actually heard the entire case, and the, the New Zealand Tar Foundation won. And what the judge said was he's going to cut the culling time in half. So from 250 aerial uh, shooting hours, it's gone down to 125. And he told everyone to get back around the table and negotiate. So if that's going to happen, who knows? Uh, but that's where we stand right now. And lastly, I'll say this, the Department of Conservation is led by a minister who is an extreme uh, greenie, essentially, mm -hmm. and actually worked for Forest and Bird uh, for 13 years. How ironic, right? Yeah. Absolutely. So it's, a, it's an interesting dilemma we're in right now. And that Forest and Bird is, is and here's, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if you've heard this before, Lucas, but the anti-hunting establishment, and, and take this with a grain of salt when I say this, the anti-hunters and the hunters want the same thing. We want more wildlife, okay? But if you dig into the anti-hunting establishment, that's actually not true. But anyway, yeah. um, that's a rabbit hole we will not dive down. Sure. Um, but 
the forest and bird is 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 suing doc because they are not fulfilling the uh their their role in the tar management plan and then the new zealand tar foundation is is <laughs> is suing doc because they're not fulfilling their obligations under the tar management plan so both mm. <laughs> are attacking the same organization <laughs> oh, man. sometimes we're our own worst enemy whether it's us or them right it's incredible now just to I guess to backtrack a little bit, that was a great overview. And I think that helps set a lot of context for the, for the conversation. So thank you for doing that. Originally in 2018, from what I understand, they were actually planning to do the coal and there were a few Rangers that actually had died in a helicopter crash, if I'm correct, when they're actually yeah, heading just, out to do just that. Got, it just got messy, right? She yeah. was going to push forward. Everyone was in an uproar. Uh, a helicopter crashed, killed the pilot and two shooters and two dock employees. And that almost just was too much for her to handle. Mm-hmm. And so she backed down and, uh, you know, supposedly had a little bit of egg on her face from that incident. And so, and look, here's the other thing that you've got to remember. Politics, again, are always at play. Mm-hmm. And New Zealand is going into an election in September. Gotcha. And this is her this is her coup de grace. This is her farewell swan song. Sure. Well they all gotta have a legacy. Been working. Yeah, Feels this is like, her right? legacy. Yeah. This is her legacy. This is what she wants to go out on. This is what she promised everyone she would do. And she's moving full forward, full force forward. Yeah. Back to back to the science piece to this. So you, you spoke to a little bit about some of the ecosystems there and how um, you know there there's there's native, obviously tussock grass there. There's there's a lot of native alpine plants. Um, but is part of their, I guess, justification in this is that they're eradicating um, or that they are foraging on these plants to the point that they're um, no longer viable. Or what is actually, I guess, if there was if there was a, a science to this, is that a part of what this is about? Yeah, absolutely. It's you know. So the, if you go to the root of the science, the root of the science um, is that there, since there were no non, since there were no native browsers in New Zealand, the flora of New Zealand is not used to grazing pressure or gotcha. browsing pressure. Okay. So, but. You've got to always look at it in, you know, the way that I approach ecology and, and ecosystem dynamics is at a landscape or, or regional perspective. Are there, and if you ask hunters in New Zealand, they'll say the same thing. Are there places in high alpine catchments where tar is having a detrimental effect on tussock grasses? The answer is Yes. In those areas, there should be higher management. Sure. More hunters, more culling to make sure that the, the ecosystem is in balance. Um, but you've also got to take into consideration the fact that the New Zealand high alpine meadows are a very geologically active landscape. There's rock slides happening. There's earthquakes happening. Those Alps are constantly growing still in terms of geologic time. Things are moving around all the time. One rock slide in the New Zealand Alps will take out more vegetation than a, a single herd of tar will do in, in three years, sure. essentially. 
So you've got to put that into context. And then you've also got to put into context that there's also commercial farming operations in the high alpine with probably, you know, a single private farm having more head of sheep than there are head of tar in the entire federal range. So, and that's why I mentioned from a scientific perspective, there's, it's very, the scientific methodology that is happening for tar population assessment, vegetation assessment is very outdated. And, um, there's in desperate need of almost revolutionizing or modernizing the methodologies that are occurring there, including both population assessments for the wildlife as well as uh, vegetation assessments. Now, just like any, other, any state agency, as we mentioned at the beginning of this, DOC is underfunded, right? They mm -hmm. just don't have the money to do all this type of work. Mm -hmm. So there's a... And, and one of the modern methodologies, just to end, end the point, one of the modern methodologies is this is the strategy called adaptive management, in which you you are allowed to manipulate management strategies in different catchments and different watersheds based on the monitoring and the data that that is feeding back to you, and so you can have different culling goals, you can have different hunting goals in different catchments through space and then over time those modify because of the feedback coming out of the system are, is the vegetation you know, doing exceptionally well are the animals doing exceptionally well if the animals are fat and producing you know, a kid every year, then the ecosystem must be good, right? it must be healthy mm -hmm. There's, there's a direct correlation there. Yeah, that's interesting. When when you talk about kind of the localization, so, and, and when you think about, a to me, a management plan, right? And I'm going to use Montana as an example because I, it just, it, it makes sense to me with what they've had to do with bighorn sheep and pneumonia, right? And when a, when a herd gets, I would say, immunity or they actually get pneumonia, um, a lot of times they have to eradicate that herd because they've typically come in contact with a domestic sheep, they get pneumonia, and they cannot treat it, right? But what they don't do is they don't eradicate all sheep in Montana, right? They localize it to the herd, to the sick, you know, if they're sick, it, it, whatever whatever their ailment is. And and I think about this, if 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 they took a principle where they used localized management, and to your point, okay, there's an area where they have been eating down the tussock grass and some of the native alpine plants and the ecosystem is struggling. Okay, you're right. Maybe you offer more hunts or maybe you do some type of coal plan there to allow that vegetation to thrive again. But to just say, hey, we're going to go out and shoot 10,000 of these, which to your point, eliminate um, because they're not using them. They're going to shoot them. They're probably going to leave them, right? Um, it, that, that to me is... Oh, it, no doubt. They're shooting and leaving. Yeah, it, it's, it's, not, it's not a management plan. It's, it's a different angle. And, and it's getting back to kind of the, the you say, the root of our conversation, um, really about, you know, getting at hunting and, and, and really trying to, um, you know, just put another nail in us um, from that perspective, and it's another angle that they're doing. And you could easily do this in a way that's manageable 
and the approach would probably be accepted by a lot, but that's not the approach that they take. And, and again, there, there's a reason why they do what they do. And to your point, there's a lot of anti-hunting, um, you know, groups that are involved in this. Uh, and, uh, and so I, I, I think about it in a different perspective because I know how we manage, you know, herds here and certain things. And a prime example case, Santa Rosa Island here in California, it was thriving with deer and Roosevelt elk. And, uh, and, and it was a, it was a safe haven for them, you know, deer from the Kaibab in Arizona were transplanted there, you know, 20 years ago and Roosevelt elk were planted there, uh, and, uh, and they were thriving and they had incredible hunts that happened out there. And then a small activist group in Santa Barbara County came out and said, well, we want to return, you know, Santa Rosa Island back to its natural state. And because of part of that, they were able to get the board of supervisors uh, in a five to two, um, you know, win essentially to go and actually went and they actually went by helicopters and they eradicated every animal on that island. And, and I'm telling you, these were high dollar hunts that were producing a lot of money, putting money back into the system. And, and it was self-sustaining. These deer were incredible deer that were continuing to thrive. These elk were thriving like crazy and uh, under a solid management plan, provides fiscal, you know, uh, abilities for fishing game. It provides people jobs, hunters and outfitters, um, helicopter pilots. I mean, there, there's so much more that gets attached to this that when you don't even think about that and, and, and you go through with attempts like this, um, it's, it's, you know, it's 20 slashes, right? I mean, it, it's just, it's, it's scary to think about what happens and, and, and what is happening. And, and again, this is just one other example of, of how they're trying to do that. So again, not to draw parallels, but I think about it in ways where, you know, it has directly impacted me and I don't, I don't live in New Zealand. You, you know, you don't live in New Zealand. We wouldn't feel it like they feel it there, but we do feel it to an extent because it is a blow to us and it's a blow to our community uh, and it's a blow to our friends. And our, you said, you, you know, you got a friend who's an outfitter down there, right? And, and I do too. And, and, and they're fighting this, right? And, and they're the ones on the front lines, whereas, you know, it, it doesn't directly impact us. It indirectly does, but it, it does have an impact across our community. And uh, that's, where, that's where I get, you know, emotionally attached to some of this because it's just not right. And, and uh, I'm a science guy. I've got an engineering degree, but, you know, I, I, I studied a lot of science in school. And I'm a firm believer, even in the industry that I work in, that we don't make decisions unless they're based on good engineering or good science, right? And, and, that's, ac- and that's accurate and updated. That's not taking a well plan from 15 years ago and saying, hey, we're going to drill a well here. We're going to do our engineering analysis right now to figure out how do we get the best use out of that resource. So anyway, that, it just, it's uh, interesting that they base a lot of their facts on, on old data. Well, just remember, and I want to make sure that we're clear about this. We're not against culling. Uh, culling is not, it, culling is a very vital management tool in the tar population management of New Zealand. Hunters in New Zealand are not asking for culling to be removed. What hunters are asking for is a seat at the table to be able to interact with DOC to help steer where culling needs to occur to maximize the benefits of both 
the native flora and fauna, as well as uh, the economic, uh, recreational, and commercial benefits tied to that game species. Yeah, and that's a great point because culling is a management tool and sometimes has to be used, right? And I even think about invasive species here. We have a lot of wild pigs in California and they become invasive and they, you know, they wreck farmers, you know, grapes and their wineries, they wreck their plants and in their, in their crops. So there is a place for some of this, but again, it has to be done in a, in a, in a respectful and tasteful way that again, takes into consideration, um, current and accurate data and science and, and not to, not to just do it in a way, um, you know, that really, in this case, you know, would da- it would damage the population if they were to go through and, and actually cull out 10,000 tar, you know, in, in oh, New right Zealand. Right now, absolutely. Right now, absolutely. It would set back, it would set back tar hunting in New Zealand probably, uh, I've heard, anywhere from five to ten years. Wow. They're not going to get rid of tar. Let's be on. Let's let's be clear. Tar, you just can't get them out the system. It's just like a feral pig. Yeah. You're never going to get it out the system. Uh, so it's going to be there, and they're going to increase in population size again. But the heyday of tar hunting is today, um, and it'll set it back, as I said, five to ten years. Wow. So thinking about, so we've we've kind of heard the backstory, the context. What is it, and, and, and again, I know, Robbie, you, you, are, you are much more involved in this, but what is it we can do, I guess, to help in this space? And, and whether it's, you know, I'm, I've always been a firm believer, write a letter. And whether it gets read or not, but if you take the time to do that, writing a letter, getting online, I know, I know there was a kind of a petition going around, and, and I signed that. And, but what are some things that, I guess, as the listeners will listen to us, what can they do now to help try to stop this? Sure. You know, I'm a very big, and you've seen this on in what I do, actions are louder than words, actions greater than words. The petition's great. At the end of the day, the petition means nothing. Let's be honest. Um, yet the, what's going to happen is there's going to be a legal fight, and somebody's going to have to fight that fight. And right now it's going to be the New Zealand Tar Foundation, and so they're going to need all the money that they possibly can have because they're going up against an anti and the anti hunting is going to have millions sitting in the bank account. Mm -hmm. And we've got a hundred thousand sitting in the bank account essentially. And so that's where the, that's what I would do in terms of your action. The best action you can give is to give your money, put your money where your mouth is essentially and give to the Tar Foundation New Zealand Uh, because whether they use the money now or they use the money in the future, or they use it to manage tar, help doc manage tar, that's where, the, well, that's where it needs to go. So from a blood origins perspective, uh, and I will say this, the other thing that somebody can do is if they want to talk about the situation, they want to post about the situation, right now we don't need the how dare they uh, type rhetoric, they need to step back. You know, we need to, we need full control. That's not what we're after. We're after the middle ground. Mm-hmm. We're after the let's all come to the table and figure this out because we want the same thing. So that's what I would say. Um, 
you know, Blood Origins we've given, we've donated already. We've got a T-shirt. Um, if people want to help, if they want, if they don't want to directly give money to the Tar Foundation, why don't you just buy a T-shirt from us or a hoodie from us? And that's going to all the proceeds from the T-shirt and hoodie sales are going to be sent to the Tar Foundation. So that's one thing we've done. Um, there's a currently an auction for a very cool little piece of artwork from a New Zealand artist that we reached. She reached out to us and she said, I want to help. I really want to help. But I'm just this, you know, I've, just, I've got a very small platform. And I said, look, let's auction your item off and whatever it sells for, Blood Origins will match it. That's cool. And so it's, it's just actions, right? It's yeah. just, we didn't, we didn't have to do that, but it's just showing I'm, I'm putting our actions where our mouth is. And then the last thing that Blood Origins has done is that uh, because we're this 501c3 organization now and we are very nimble and we plan to implement projects around the world in a very direct implementation model, I had a, a somebody who interacted with Blood Origins and loved Blood Origins for what it is. And he says, how can I help? And I said, this specific individual, actually, when we first started talking about Blood Origins, he said, I want to be the first person who cuts you a check uh, for donating towards Blood Origins. And so I reached out to him and I said, look, I've got this opportunity in New Zealand. We're going we're gonna to film this really cool film, this really cool documentary about tar that's way outside the box. And I've got the best cameraman in the world lined up for it in New Zealand, and it's going to cost X. And so you could be the first person to cut the check for Blood Origins and fund our first project outright. And he said, yep, tell me where to send the money. Oh, that's awesome. And we're done. And, so, and, the, and the project's been filmed, by the way. You're the first person to hear this. Nobody's ever heard me say this. But the people that filmed the project came out the field yesterday. They've been in the field for three days. Done. Wow. That's exciting. That, and that, oh, it's going to be great. is good stuff, right? I mean, that stuff right there to me is, to your point, actions speak louder than words. And, and you know, and, and when I think about how people can help, right, there, there's so many ways you can write a check. God forbid we all need that, right? I mean, a lot of the stuff that we do, we can't do without, without having some cash. But your time to me anymore is so valuable and sometimes even more valuable to me than a check. And, and I'm involved in a lot of different um, conservation groups here in, in California. You know, we do a lot of dinner banquets and stuff. And a lot of people will say, you know, hey, you know, I want to help. You know, can I, can I join the membership? I said, you know what? I said, why don't you volunteer your time and come help us out for our dinner, you know, and help us with our event. And to me, I would rather have that individual than have them write a $10,000 check, to be honest, because to me, um, time is so important and so critical and it's so hard to get people's time to do that kind of stuff. And, uh, so that, that's great. I I'm, I'm looking at your website in the name of tar. That is, that is just too cool. And, it's a uh, badass. It's a badass design. What a cool T-shirt! I think I'm going to have to uh, jump on myself and and support the cause as well. Um, this is this is neat. Uh, and and I think you know at that end, you know, Robbie, I I have really appreciated um, you know talking with you tonight and and just really getting um, I would say a, a different perspective on 
a lot of the stuff that's hitting us. And, and again, I read through this. Um, I do a little research myself. And, and again, I take in information and data and, and I kind of pull it in one way. But hearing you um, is really an advocate uh, and, and working with these organizations on the front lines, hearing what you're doing, um, you know, from I know from from my behalf and, and, and RNA Outdoors, we appreciate the stuff that you're doing. And, uh, you know, when, when it, when it's work to me, it, it's different than when it's a passion. And, and, and I've always said that I've had so many people say, man, you know, when are you going to leave your day job and just be a professional hunter or do the things you want to do? I said, you know, I said, I've thought, often thought about that very often, but I said, I don't know that if I would love it as much if I did it as a profession. And, I love my job. I love what I do. I add value every day. Um, I feel like I give back to the state of California in a way um, that's meaningful. But my release from that is doing my passion at work and the things that I do. And it's talking to people like you. It's it, it it's putting out good, solid, factual information through the podcast. It's going out and living these adventures myself and, and doing things um, that I've dreamt to do my whole life. And I'm, and I'm at a point now in my life, I can do a lot of this stuff. So it, it, it's, it, it's that, it's that kind of stuff to me that, that resonates and, and, uh, and really is what is important. And uh, that's why to me, I, I say, you know, I think forever, if I, you know, one day I retire from my day job, maybe I'll, I'll make that, you know, more of a full-time thing. But right now it, it's a passion. I love to do it. Uh, and, uh, it's a fire that burns inside of me every day, uh, that I can't wait to go do. So anyway, Robbie, I do want to give you some time to, to plug, you know, your website, your social, all the stuff you're doing. How can, people get a hold of you? What's the best way to, to help? I mean, you're a 501c3 now. That is super exciting, right? Because yep. that allows us yep. to write a check and help you out yep. and, and get a tax yep. deduction. But what are some outlets and ways people can get a hold of you? Yeah, just, you know, first and foremost, <laughs> I'm not the kind of guy that asks for money. Uh, I, I'm a passion guy. I'm a vision guy. Um, but at the end of the day, that's what need. That's what we need to keep doing what we do, and uh, you know, a simple donation of you know, coffee a month, five bucks a month, reoccurring, that somebody puts on their on their credit card is going to go a whole long way for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's something that I I would be remiss I would be remiss not to ask for. But um, yeah, anybody can connect with us. Just Blood Origins on on Instagram, Blood Origins, on Facebook, Blood Origins, on YouTube. You can sit in your bed and you can watch Blood Origins on Amazon Prime. I don't know if you knew that. Very Um, cool. Yeah, anyway, bloodorigins.com, Blood Origins on Twitter. Uh, We're we're pretty much everywhere and, you know, we have started ramping up our content and we continue, we'll continue to push this narrative that is conveying the truth around hunting. Um, but we do need help. Um, and that help comes in the form of two things, obviously some funding, as I said, you know, we've got the, we've actually got a little Facebook subscription thing happening right now as well, two ninety nine a month and Facebook's got the subscription thing. Um, but also sharing our message because, and it's, and I'll, I'll finish by saying this blood origins if you've, if you've figured out something about what Blood Origins is today, Blood Origins is not about Robbie Kroger. 
Blood Origins is not about self. Blood Origins is about us. It's about our community. And that's what you're going to see on the project. You're rarely going to see me. You're going to see me in a talking head. Other than that, this project's about us and showcasing our heart. And I think that's what sets us apart from all the other, dare you call us a show or, or whatever you want to call us, an organization, a platform, a project, a narrative. That's what sets us apart. So, yeah, any help you can give us in, in disseminating and sharing our heart, our message, is where we want to be. Well, we appreciate it. Uh, we appreciate you and, and what you're doing. And uh, like I said, I, I, I would strongly encourage um, the listeners today to, to jump on the social feeds and, and look at what, um, you know, this group is doing. And, and, and really, I, I look at it as momentum. And, and it's just, it's kind of like that, that little snowball that starts at the top of the mountain. And then it just continues to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and as I see what you're doing, and, and you've connected with people with, to me that are, I consider, um, life friends, you know, Jay Lane Decker is, is one of my mm-hmm. really good friends, right? Charlie Watson. I hunted with Charlie 15 years ago in South America, you know, Jose, <laughs> wow. Jose as well. I mean, the, these are guys that, you know, you, you are helping them convey and tell their story. And these are some of the best guys in the industry. I mean, these guys, um, they're incredible humans, right? Um, they're very respectful and they're very respected. And, uh, it's so neat seeing you, um, help them. And, and, and obviously, uh, you know, it works both ways, but hearing these stories and showcasing them, uh, is, is just so neat to watch and, and it's exciting. And, and, uh, again, from my standpoint, really appreciate, um, the stuff that you're doing. Uh, and, uh, yeah, just, uh, really, really excited and, and, uh, glad that we were able to connect today and, and get on and, and talk about a couple things that are, you know, hot topics right now, uh, in our industry and, and, uh, things that hopefully, you know, in six months, uh, we're running victory laps and, and hitting high fives, but just know that in six months, there's going to be something else coming at us. Right. And, uh, we need everyone and, and we need that support. And, uh, hopefully, uh, again, I would encourage the listeners today to, uh, to help Robbie out and, and help blood origins out. In, in any way possible. Uh, and he provided a few of those outlets today. So anyway, Robbie, thank you. Appreciate you. Uh, appreciate your time. Time is precious. We all have, you know, you say day jobs, we have families and, and cutting time out to do this is important. But uh, again, very, uh, very appreciative of your time today. Uh, and thank you for your insight. Thank you, brother. Much appreciate you. Robbie Kroger, Blood Origins. Hey everyone, this is Lucas Paw, host of the RNA Outdoors podcast. Please check out Podbean and iTunes. If you have an iPhone or iPad, go to the podcast app on your device, search for RNA Outdoors, and hit the purple subscribe button. When doing this, it will automatically upload when new podcasts are loaded and they will download into your queue. For Android users, you can access the podcast through Podbean, Stitcher, or use our website www.rnaoutdoors.com forward slash podcast. In addition, 
under the RNA Outdoors podcast channel, please leave a review and a five-star rating. These reviews help boost our popularity and outreach. You can also follow us on our social media outlets, Twitter at RNA Outdoors, Facebook, RNA Outdoors, and Instagram, Rod and Arrow Outdoors. All links are in the show notes as well. If you like what you've heard, we hope you'll pass along our channel to your friends and colleagues. Keep up the good fight. We cannot sit by and watch the public lands devoted to wildlife protection wither away. There's simply too much at stake. Make your voice heard, speak up, and get involved with conservation efforts. And know that every little bit helps. As we say on the mountain, go farther, stay longer.